Let us pray as we dive into God's Word together. Father, we come to you on this beautiful day that you have made. We ask that you be with us tonight. God, as we open up your Word, as we discuss your truths that have been handed down to us, been sharpened and refined through the generations in our understanding of them. God, I pray that you will bless our time, help us to walk away encouraged and challenged, all by the power of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, before we begin, before we talk about this doctrine, if you are wondering where we are and you have the book with you, we are on page 26, article 12. Uh, concerning justification. Justification. Don't be deceived by the only four lines there. I think it was Spurgeon who said, the shorter the text, the longer the sermon. Um, I don't know if we'll we'll go there uh, tonight, but we do want to cover this the best that we can in the time that we have. Well, before we jump into the doctrine itself, I think it's helpful to begin by way of a story. There's a man... Once upon a time, who was eager to live for the Lord. He had once pursued a career in law. You see, his dad was a minor. His dad was growing up and and wanting something prestigious for his son. Wanting his son to excel. And so he sent his son to law school. Well... One day, there was a thunderstorm, and this man was knocked down, and he was terrified in the midst of the thunderstorm, away from home, and he cried out to his patron saint, Saint Anne, help me, spare my life. And I'll dedicate my life and become a monk. I'll dedicate my life to studying God's Word. Well, he was spared, and he held up his end of the bargain. He went to become a monk, much to his dad's disappointment. And so he gave up his law career to pursue theology. But what happened was as he pursued theology, as he was in the Word of God, on a daily basis, something happened that couldn't have happened had he stayed in a career of law. You see, as he's pursuing law, he's easily distracting himself with his studies. But now, as he's studying the Bible, he's coming to grips with the fact that he is a sinner. He is a sinner and God is holy. And how can I, a sinner, ever think that I can have a right relationship with a holy God? And so this would haunt him. There were times where he would sit for hours and confess his sins to a priest. They would get annoyed with him. They would go away. But as he went away, he couldn't help but thinking, Maybe I forgot something. Maybe there's some sin in my life that I'm not thinking about or I didn't confess right there. And so even as he took steps away, it was 
steps of terror. Maybe I didn't confess something that is a deep sin in my life. Maybe I'm unaware of it. Well, he thinks to himself, can there ever be peace? Can I ever be made right with God? Many people would walk up the holy stairs. Scala Sancta. It was supposed to help them on their way to salvation. He thought, maybe this will give me assurance. But as he got up to the top, he said aloud, who knows whether all of this is true. A heart that yearned for security, but never found it, soon became angry at God. Some of you, especially high schoolers here tonight, know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the life of Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, but who he was named after. Martin Luther was a reformer of the 16th century and the father to modern-day Lutheranism. And so, this may seem strange to begin a study on doctrine here at a Baptist church talking about Martin Luther. But I think it's appropriate for two reasons. One, how much he's contributed to our own understanding of the doctrine that we're going to talk about tonight. And secondly, I think some of us, even here in this room, can relate to insecurity about where we stand with God. And I do think what we talk about tonight, and I hope and I pray, it will give you security. It will give you assurance. It will make your heart glad in the Lord. So we'll get into it by reading uh, the Article 12 on justification in our Statement of Faith says this, We believe that the great gospel blessing which Christ secures to such as believe in Him is justification. That justification includes the pardon of sin and the gift of eternal life on the principles of righteousness. That it is bestowed not in consideration of any works of righteousness which we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood, His righteousness is imputed to us. What a beautiful statement that we have. Well, as we talk about this doctrine, we're going to have it in two main sections. The first is the benefits of justification, and the second is the basis of justification. We'll start with the benefits, and then we'll move to the basis. Firstly, Justification results in the pardon of sin and eternal life. It results in, one, the pardon of sin, and two, the gift of eternal life. First, the pardon of sin. This is in our doctrine statement. It includes the pardon of sin. Some of us, or some of you that have heard of this idea of justification before, may have become familiar with a phrase that seems to roll off the tongue really well. It's, what is justification? They would say, it's just as if I had never sinned. Just as if 
I had never sinned. If you have your booklets with you, you can flip over and we're going to look at a couple of these scriptures. The first is Romans 8, 1. It says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Zechariah 13.1 says it will cleanse us from sin and uncleanliness. But what about Romans 5.1? It says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. You can say that to have peace with God, it's not only us having our slates wiped clean, but we must be righteous as He is righteous. We must not only have not sinned, but also we should have done what we should have done. We should have been perfectly obedient. It's not the sins that, just the sins of commission, the things that we did, but the sins of omission, the things that we should have did, but we didn't do. So we talk about this idea of justification. It's not simply just as if I had never sinned. That's good. That's a nice start. But it's more than that. It's a declaration of righteousness. It's you being declared a righteous one before holy God. Ashton and I went to a conference this past week. And uh, one thing that they pushed, uh, they, they wanted to let everybody know about, it was scrolled all the way across the walls of the entire conference center, uh, was, it was called the New City Catechism. Uh, question 32 says this, What did justification and sanctification mean? We'll just read the justification part. It says, Justification means our declared righteousness before God. Our declared righteousness before God. Very simple, succinct answer to what is justification. Just by way of continuing their plug that they plugged us. Um, when we talk about some of these terms, when we talk about justification, sanctification, um, a catechism, it might seem Roman Catholic to us, when we hear that term, but it can be a very helpful teaching tool to teach children these terms. Even if they're not understanding the terms at two years old, like ours are learning them now, it's something that will stay with them for their life. As one pastor said, it's, it's the Velcro to which sermons stick. When you hear the word justification, immediately what comes to mind is declared righteous. I hope that's what comes to your mind continuing from this series. When we talk about things like sanctification, justification, when you hear these terms, we don't just see the word, but it brings a whole bucket load of knowledge with it. That is our hope and that is our prayer even in studying this out. 
So justification is more than just being just as if I had never sinned. It's actually being declared righteous. It is God decreeing to see us as righteous ones before Him. We'll get to that. Second is the gift of eternal life. The gift of eternal life. A sinful people can enter into the forever presence of a righteous God. You, though a sinner, can enter into the presence of a righteous God forever. Because you are declared righteous. Because you are declared righteous. We must ask ourselves, how can one who is unclean the sinner be able to enter into the presence of God who is without blemish. The answer is right in our doctoral statement. It says this has to be on the principles of righteousness or on the grounds of righteousness, we could say. But then we have to ask the question, well, how can a person possess this righteousness? Does he possess it inherently? in who He is and what He does? Or is it by another? Is it by imputation? R.C. Sproul says this is the question of the Reformation. Does someone possess this kind of righteousness? The righteousness that says, I can stand before God and He is pleased with me I can enter into His presence because of my righteousness? Is that because of us? Because of what we do? Or is that because of what's been done for us? Or is that based on another? If you have your Bibles, please flip to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we will start in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's return to Luther. He says this, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would appease Him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against Him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection 
between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and I've gone through the doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it came to be inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul, Romans 1.17, gave me a gate into heaven. One person writing says, The awakening to the gospel was possibly triggered by Luther's reading of an obscure comment of St. Augustine who explained that divine righteousness of what Paul speaks is not the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but the righteousness that God gives to us by faith. This is important. God can and does declare us righteous before him. He can and does declare us righteous before him. But not because of our inherent righteousness, but because of the righteousness of another. Let me break it down for us. Look at our doctrinal statement. It says, This is bestowed not on consideration of any works which we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood and in His righteousness imputed to us. Solely through faith. Is imputed to us, it's given to us, it's handed over to us. Pastor Nate, when we talked about the atonement, stole my message in a certain degree in which he, he talked about having different shirts and our sin is, is handed over to Jesus the moment we believe and His righteousness, His perfection is handed over and placed on us. So the former is called the great exchange. The moment we believe that we trust in Jesus, we are seen as perfect as Jesus was. Not because of our righteousness, not because of our inherent righteousness, not because of who we are and what we have done, but because of Jesus and what He has done. It's referred to as an alien righteousness or a foreign righteousness. Righteousness that doesn't exist in us, but one that exists in another. We're united to Jesus through faith. Faith is the uniting principle. It is this faith that has credited to us as righteousness. Let's look at all the scripture we have for this. <clears throat> Romans 1.17, we said it before, but we'll say it again. From faith, for faith, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Galatians 3, 11, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Romans 4, 1-8. We'll read the whole passage. Romans 4, 1-8. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Hebrews 10.38 But my righteous one shall live by faith. It's by faith alone. This was a key point in the Reformation. It's not Jesus coming alongside and making it possible and we're cooperating with Him, but it's faith in Christ alone. The moment we believe we're declared righteous is credited to us. And this can have no relation with those who believe that we can do something to merit or earn our own salvation. The problem is that this contradicts with the worldviews and the world that we live in. For most of us in America today, the key essence or what defines us or where happiness can be found is by looking within ourselves. Look in you, find the true you, and live according to that. We could say in one essence, that's the Disney mantra. Defy everybody who stands in the way of what you think you should do. doesn't matter. Your father doesn't think that, Ariel. Pursue the true you. Just let it go, as you say. Express yourself. Be the true you. That's how you'll find happiness. That's how you'll find security. That's, and if anybody stands in your way, it's their fault, not yours. Well, Scripture busts in and says, no, the problem is you. The solution is outside of you. The solution is Jesus. Or we could say it simply like this. The world says the problem is outside of us and the solution is inside us. But Christianity says the problem is within us, but the solution is outside of us. Talked a few weeks ago about the fact that we are fallen, that we are depraved. We chase after 
the things of this world, the things that will not satisfy. But yet Christ has come to die for the sinners. And hope is found in Him. And through Him we have a new life. Through Him we, have, we are a new creation. But again, we struggle with this. We struggle with this idea that we can trust in someone outside of ourselves and His righteousness will be made like us. You said, no, no, no I like that because I know I'm, 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 I'm messed up. And I like the fact that I can trust in Jesus and then I will become made perfect as He was perfect. Do we? How many times have Christians been upset with someone who comes to faith later in life? They're on their deathbed and they come to trust Jesus as their Savior, and they've lived a life of crime and a life of hating the God who made them. You think how sometimes it can be easy to think, well, how can they have the same thing I have? I've lived my life serving this Jesus, and they trust in him at the end of their life, and they're declared just as righteous. Yes, and that's a beautiful thing. And that is a beautiful thing. How easy it is to, for us to see the sin and the misery in other people's life but turn a blind eye on our own. We have no hope to save ourselves. We are dependent on God. And second, if we think living for God for our whole life is a depressing and horrible way to spend our life, we don't understand what it means to live for God. We get to live for the King who saved us. We get to live for the God who came to this earth and took the nails in our place. So we ask ourselves, well, how does Jesus save us? If this is the grounds, if by placing our faith and trust in Jesus alone, how is it that He is a worthy sacrifice? Talk about two aspects of Jesus the passive obedience of Christ and the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience is that Jesus took the penalty for our sins. The distinction here is that the law of God has both penalty for disobedience as well as a demand to be followed. In the passive aspect of Jesus' obedience, it is Him satisfying all the wrath and penalty for sin in His own life. This can be reduced simply to the cross, but careful theologians such as John Murray and Louis Burkhoff have pointed out that while this is most clearly seen in the punishment on the cross, it is something that he accomplished throughout his entire life. The sinless Savior took the consequences and punishments of sin, though he was sinless. On the cross... We'll celebrate even this coming week. Jesus took the wrath for you. We talked last week about God choosing the Son for salvation, God predestining the Son for salvation. We talked about the great golden chain in Romans 8 that those who 
predestines, He calls. Those He calls, He justifies. You could say, in a very real sense, in a literal sense, that Jesus, when He was walking on this earth, when the Father sent Him to this earth, He had you in mind. You believe. That the punishments, the abuse that he took was him being abused for you. That him being nailed to the cross and God's wrath being poured out was him taking that instead of you. How can you know that you will not endure the wrath of God in the future? Because your substitute, the one you believe in, took that wrath already. God's not going to punish you for what's already been paid for. You are finite. You are not the eternal God. You could never take God's punishment in a moment. It would be eternity to pay for what you've done against an eternal God. But the eternal God-man took that punishment on Himself. He's able to absorb that. He's able to deal with that. So that we might not need to. How can we have confidence? How can we have hope that the wrath of God will never touch us? Because it's already touched the precious Lamb of God. Second is the active obedience of Christ. We have the passive obedience of Christ. We have the active obedience of Christ. This is Jesus actively obeying in our place. Jesus actively obeying in our place. This is Jesus fulfilling the law of God perfectly. Have you sinned this week? Have you sinned today? The sins in this life do not determine our standing, but the perfection of Jesus is our security. It's in Him, not us. It's in our substitute that we have hope. This is why the Reformers and Martin Luther could say, Simul usus epacator. A slogan he had throughout his ministry. At the same time, just and sinner. You inherently, you yourself, you're a sinner. Even now, even today, I hate to break it to you. You're married and ask your spouse. You're a sinner. But at the same time, you are just and you're righteous and you're lovely and you're beautiful before the eyes of God. Why? Because you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. At the same time, righteous and sinner. But let's not confuse this. Those God justifies, He also sanctifies. If, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been washed clean, you also desire to be made clean. You also desire to be inherently righteous as He is righteous. That's not the grounds, that's not the foundation of your faith. But that is the pursuit of your life. Those two are tied. 
I like the, when, when the father looks down on Jesus at his baptism. He looks down and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Some of us, we might think, well, of course he's pleased. Jesus was obedient. He didn't commit sins that I do. See, might he even now, you're, you think of that phrase or you think about that phrase in, in the past and you said, well, that, that's not comforting, that's exhausting. The Father's pleased with Jesus, but how could he be pleased with me? Well, we need to understand what Jesus was doing there. When John objected to baptizing, he says, John, you don't understand, I need to do this. I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Whose righteousness? Ours. I need to do this for the people I'm representing. He says that this is a baptism of repentance. What does he have to repent of? Your sins? He's fulfilling the righteousness for us. He's going into the waters for us. How can the Father be pleased with you? Because just as He looked down at His Son and said, this is My Son in whom I'm well pleased, all who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, He looks down and He says, these are My children and I'm well pleased with them. They're Mine. They're beautiful. They're spotless. I love the illustration that Francis Turton gives. Actually, it's not his. It's, uh, I found out it's accredited to Ambrose, but here it goes. The gospel teaches that what could not be found in us was to be sought in another. It could be found nowhere else than Christ, the God-man, who, taking upon himself the office of surety, most fully satisfied the justice of God by His perfect obedience, and thus brought to us an everlasting righteousness by which alone we can be justified before God. Listen to this, listen to this. In order that covered and clothed with that garment, as though it were of our firstborn, like Jacob, we may obtain under it the eternal blessing of our Heavenly Father. Do you get the imagery? It says, like Jacob... Put on some fur. <laughs> Pass off as his brother. Dad kind of feels his eyes. He says, oh, this, 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 must be, this must be your brother. Here, go ahead. Here, here's the blessing. He's saying, just like Jacob did that, we're clothed with Jesus' righteousness. And God looks and he says, that must be my son. Go ahead, receive the blessing. Come to me. Rush into my presence. I'm well pleased with you. This isn't done with deceit. This is the intention of God. This is the intention of God. If you'll bear with me for one other catechism. The question, how are you righteous before God? And the answer is, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And it continues, Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, and never kept any of them, and still being inclined towards evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction 
the righteousness and the holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. When you're tempted, when you're in doubt this week, and when Satan says, not good enough, failure, weakened heart, look to Christ, the one who lived a life you never could. Look to Christ who didn't deserve punishment, but took it in your place. Look to Christ who left the perfect comfort to take on flesh and overcome the temptations that overcome you. The spotless lamb took the curse and sin for you so that you might be called blameless and spotless. Jesus tasted death so that you might live forever. And then he took a seat. Rest in him. You were the you maybe came tonight and you're struggling. Your battle has been won by another. You don't need to walk stairs for assurance. You don't need one more trip to the confessional so that God will finally love you. You are truly loved by God and you are lovely in His sight because of Jesus. Do you believe that? Is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? If so, this week, walk in gratitude knowing that it is finished. That He has accomplished it. That Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Dear Father, I do thank You for this beautiful doctrine of justification that because of Your Son, all who believe in Him will be declared righteous. They will be seen as perfect and spotless in Your sight. Not because of their works, not because of what's true with them, but because of what's true about Your Son in their place. God, I thank You for Your love for us. I thank You for sending Your Son. I thank You for forgiving us. Help us this week to walk freely in what You have purchased for us in His blood. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.